Welcome back to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Today's extraordinary podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Yes Pallets. Yes Pallets is the pallet removal, waste removal, and recycling removal company that places risk mitigation, OSHA compliance, and customer-obsessed service first. They can upscale at a moment's notice and remove barriers to provide you with a safe and clean work environment. What is extraordinary? Webster's Dictionary defines it as very unusual or remarkable. Today's podcast with Dr. Marcus Martin is extraordinary. The podcast and Dr. Martin not going to only personify the word extraordinary, but it's going to push you to do something extraordinary. And it's also going to help you redefine another word, impossible. When you hear this podcast and the incredible stories from my fellow football and NC State alum, Dr. Marcus Martin, you will be led to laugh, to think, and to cry. And as Jimmy V said, that is one heck of a day when you can laugh, think, and cry. This is one heck of a podcast. Hey! Thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you're following the podcast on social media. You can follow the Chris Williams podcast hour on both IG and Twitter at the Chris will pod and on Facebook. It is simply the Chris Williams podcast hour. As I said before, and I will say it again, all of our podcasts are good. So enjoy the content you are familiar with and try the unknown. You will learn something from it. And more importantly, you'll get hooked. So please sit back and listen to the man my teammates and I owe so much for opening doors to a university which has given us so much. Once again, thank you for listening. Enjoy the podcast. And thank you, Dr. Marcus Martin. This is the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Chris Williams Podcast Hour, and today I am honored to have a very special podcast guest. In 1967, he became the first African-American to play football for North Carolina State University. He graduated in 1970 with degrees in pulp and paper technology and chemical engineering. He would go on to become a member of the charter class of Eastern Virginia Medical School in their first African-American graduate, where he earned his medical degree in 1976, and he would go to have a long, distinguished career at the University of Virginia, where he was the first African-American to head a clinical department at UVA. Please help me welcome to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, a pioneer and special guest that my teammates and I owe a lot to for being the first African-American to open doors of opportunity at NC State. Please welcome Dr. Marcus Martin. Dr. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. That was awesome. 
I don't think I've ever had an introduction like that before, so it really makes me feel great. So good morning to you and, uh, and to your listeners. I'm happy to be with you, um, and uh, this is an awesome time. I know you and your teammates were, what, the late 80s and early 90s? Probably yes, sir. 20, That's correct. 20 years after uh, I walked into the team. So uh, I'm sure I'm a, quite a bit grayer than you guys. <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. But, yeah. but to be exact, it was 20 years almost yeah. to the day that we, I stepped onto the campus after you. Yeah. So, coach for Sheridan? Coach yes, Sheridan? Coach Sheridan. Yeah. That's correct. And my coach. That is correct. <laughs> okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Le- legends. Legends, of course. All right. Well, like I said, Dr. Marcus Martin, welcome to the Chris Williams Podcast. And I've said it to you before, this is truly an honor, and I don't even think the word honor does enough justice because of the opportunity you set in motion for so many African-American athletes. And, you know, in full disclosure, I reached out to my teammates. <laughs> they helped me put these questions together. So oh, okay. Before we, no yes. Yeah, <laughs> so before we get started, and like I tell all my guests, this podcast does not work unless you share your stories and shamelessly plug yourself. So okay. feel free to brag about your amazing accomplishments, all right? Well, thank you. Thank you. All right, let's get started this way. So talk about growing up in Covington, Virginia, and what that experience was like. Right. Yeah, Covington is a, a little town in the mountains, um, the uh, northwestern part of the state of Virginia, very small. I think maybe we had 6,000 people there, maybe 10,000 at the most when I was growing up. And um, so I was very unassuming, you know, came from a, a low-income family. My father was a laborer at the local paper mill. Uh, it was called West Virginia Pulp and Paper Company. Then they shortened it to West Bay Co. And uh, I think the name now is West Rock. So it's still there. You know, it's been the stable force for families to earn income there. Um, so my dad and uh, my uncles worked at the paper mill. He had a sixth-grade education. My mother had a 12th-grade education. Um, she didn't go to college, didn't have money to go to college, uh, but she was very smart, and uh, she was the president of the Parents Teachers Association at one point. Okay. So, you know, she had eyes on us as well as the teachers had eyes on us. And in addition, my um, house was right across the street from the school. Uh, it was an all-black school, you know, so we lived in segregated times. Uh, my mom did some domestic work, but she was also an insurance agent, and she would go around the community, black community, and collect insurance uh, money on a weekly basis, and I would travel with her in the car. Um, that's the story in itself, uh, some of the work I helped her do. But anyway, she was quite competitive. My mom played horseshoes, played scrabble and badminton. You couldn't beat her. So I think uh, I got some competitiveness from her. But I had two older brothers, and they both played high school sports, uh, both played football, one played basketball. And those guys had paper routes. Um, my oldest brother had the Richmond Times Dispatch. And if you can remember the days of the paper board and you got that bag strapped on your shoulder, those papers mm-hmm. were heavy. <laughs> and my uh, next brother, middle brother, who was older than me, also carried the Covington, Virginia paper, Covington, Virginia. And I was like a... I don't know, six to ten page paper, very light. But the bottom line, you know, those papers had to be carried early in the morning or late in the evening 
and they were involved in various activities. So often I would have to carry papers for them in the morning and in the evenings. And I knew where all the dogs were in the neighborhood. So that was one of the things. That was one of the jobs I had to do quite early. But um, my um, middle brother, Tony, played football at Virginia State. All my siblings went to HBCUs. Uh, my oldest brother went to Virginia Union. He had a focus in math and chemistry and physics. And he actually taught me physics in high school. So uh, I think I got some of my science competitiveness from him. And uh, both of my brothers, when they graduated uh, from college, um, went on to work at West Bay Co. also. So everybody worked at this paper mill. The uh, middle brother had a business degree from Virginia State. He worked on the business end of the paper industry. Older brother had, you know, this math and science degrees, and he worked in what's called a carbon plant, where, you know, the lignin uh, is the carbonation part of the wood chip separates from the cellulose fiber. And um, But that lignin, that carbon can be used in um, filters, like water filters or, you know, gas mask filters. So, I mean, it was a family thing. And um, so I went to NC State and eventually came back and became a production engineer at West Bay Coast. The two sisters, uh, one older, she was two years older than me, and we worked on science and math projects together and competed at the state level. And then a younger sister, four years younger, um, one I squabbled with quite a bit, I think. Uh, anyway, the, both sisters went to Hampton and both got bachelor's degrees in education and both went on to other institutions to get master's degrees. They became teachers, administrators, and principals. So um, my siblings were quite well to do, all went to HBCUs, and I was the only one that stepped outside of the uh, state to go to the predominantly white institution. Um, the school was very small, totally segregated, was across the street. I only had 40 students in my class, 20 boys and 20 girls, so very small. Wow. But, wow. you know, wonderful family, though. Okay. All right. Now, you mentioned competitiveness hard work, yeah. and education. So were those the pillars of the foundation for character for you and your family, or were there other ideas or great lessons that your parents taught you? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, uh, we did fight like most siblings do, um, but there was a lot of love. There was respect, you know, support. And the community was one where you had uh, my black community on one side of the tracks, and then there was another black community on the other side of the tracks, um, my mom uh, had connections with families on the other side of the tracks, and so my two older brothers went to church with her across the tracks, and my dad and my two sisters went just right down the street on Pine Street, you know, just a couple blocks to go to church. But, you know, it was a small home. Three boys all lived in one room, um, two girls in one room. We had only three bedrooms, mom and dad had a bedroom. But, you know, we had beautiful times at Christmas, um, church, church every Sunday. Uh, we were respected in the community. And um, my dad was highly respected as a laborer. Uh, he got many awards for safety at the paper mill. But, you know, he, he would always tell me, uh, we'd have a conversation about things, and then he would end it by saying, well, use my best discretion. And I recall when I went to state, um, my senior year of high school, I also competed for the Air Force Academy. And once I was in state fall of 66, I got a call from the Air Force Academy that I was accepted. So I was on this payphone with my dad, and we talked. We talked. Talked to pros and cons. Air Force Academy out in Colorado was a long ways away, and um, mm-hmm. you know who knows what's going to happen out there. All guys at that school. I remember um, there was some type of scandal, and people had the lights had to be out at nine o'clock. You had to study under your sheets. So my dad said, "Use your best discretion." And make a long story short, I decided not to go to the Air Force Academy. But 
you know, he would talk, then give me the opportunity to make the decision. So I learned a lot from him and my mom, honesty, hard work, dependability, uh, and to manage my time. And then, you know, when working for my brothers, I mean, I was carrying their papers, I was cutting grass, chopping and selling, kindling wood and shoveling snow like a lot of guys would do to make money, bagging groceries. And a good story with my mom, she was an insurance agent. She would go around collecting insurance in the community. I would come back and do the accounting. I must have been a middle schooler. I'd use this old-fashioned crank calculator to not make any mistakes. So I think I began to understand math uh, because if I made mistakes, my mom probably would have had to pay money back. So anyway, oh, wow. learned a lot from my parents and, and siblings. And that's a lot of pressure to have on you at an early age as well. With, that's oh, right. <laughs> Stepped up to the plate, though, hopefully. Awesome, awesome. All right. So as you were becoming of age, so there was a lot of civil unrest in the country. How difficult, yeah. how difficult was it for you and your family and do you have any stories that stick out about that time? Yeah, you know, again, uh, we were in a small community in the mountains, uh, segregated, and that was a way of life. We didn't know anything else. I remember, you know, um, the high school football, our, our team would challenge the white high school to um, sporting events. We would put flyers on windows and stuff like that, but people ignored us. So, you know, we never had any kind of integrated sports. Uh, but I do remember – very vividly, you know, uh, the summer, I think it was 1967, I was headed back to NC State for my second year uh, for early football camp, and my two brothers took me down to the bus station. I already had my ticket. I get to the bus station. The bus is there, and I think the uh, bus driver is ready to take off, and we said, hold on, hold on. Um, and then the bus station owner uh, used the N-word and said, you know, you're late. Uh, you can't get on the bus. So, uh, and then his son was there. Yeah, his son pulled out a, a baseball bat. And I I can remember maybe it was a gun, too. I don't remember that totally, but I remember um, my brother said, no, he's got to get on this bus. He's got to get back to school. And, um, you know, things escalated. Um, and it was a tussle. So I was able to get out there, get out of there, and just go on down to the next uh, stop, Clifton Forge, Virginia. That's where my wife uh, grew up. Since I had my ticket, I was able to get on the bus and get on back to state and, you know, got there for August for football camp. But my two brothers were in trouble, and my father and our local minister had to go and in the seat at the police station. Um, they uh, there were some kind of loose charges, and they appealed it later in the spring. And I was around spring camp, 68, and I couldn't come back. Um, but I wasn't charged. But, I mean, those types of things, African-American males being challenged like that, and that still happens today. Yes, yes. Yeah, we were fortunate oh, wow. nobody got killed, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. as I look at yes. what happens today, um, certainly I've had that incident. And there's been some other incidents as well. And incidents like that, even when I, as a professional in my 60s, stopped by police, and um, this is a whole other story. It could take a whole hour, but I'm not going to tell this one. But it's very similar to what you're seeing today where things escalate and something goes from a, a simple traffic violation to, wanting to make it a felony. Um, so things have not changed. But anyway, yeah, we right. we had our issues back during the day, um, but we were protected in a way being in a small community. Um, didn't have – we only had black and white TV. <laughs> we didn't have the social media like you have today. So a lot of what was going on we didn't know about. <laughs> I got you. I got you. 
So how old were you when you began to play sports, and what sports did you play? Yeah, I was uh, probably middle school, maybe um, probably played a little football. I did, you know, a little field beside my house when I was maybe um, eight or nine years old. So, but there were there were some men in the community who would put together um, little league teams for like a little better way to describe it: football and basketball. So I played football and basketball competitively around sixth grade. That's when I first started. Played at baseball, but I wasn't. Any good at all. Now, did sports provide you with an escape from the realities of what were happening? Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, being up in the mountains where we were back during the day, you know, fifties, uh, sixties, uh, no social media, just black and white TV. Uh, we knew what was going on around the country. We knew about. Uh, we were aware of civil rights concerns, uh, but we were focus on family and school and community. So um, did not get too involved unless, uh, you know, we, we stepped out of uh, black communities, would go to town. Um, once in a while something would happen. I remember one of my schoolmates did something in the store and started running, and I saw him, and I started running after him. And I, my mom and dad said, well, why did you do that? Because the next day I was in the principal's office trying to explain why I was running after my friend trying to figure out what he was running from. So that's a whole other oh. story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, back during the day. Okay. All right. Well, we'll talk about your high school days, what your high school was like, and were there any teachers that saw your potential and, you know, especially your gift on the education side, and uh, they helped yeah. push you to excel? Yep. That's So my mom um, had a – 12th grade education, and um, my dad's youngest sister also, but, you know, my uncles and aunts, for the most part, did not have high school education. But my school, Watson High School, was located directly across the street. All I needed to do is roll out in the bed, in bed eat my breakfast, and I'm into the school. Um, so there was a lot of uh, uh, easiness for me and my siblings, for lack of a better way to say it, to be involved in school activity. And um, my dad got his GED later in life, but my mom was always involved uh, as president of Parent Teachers Association, and she knew all the teachers. All of our teachers were black, and they all were graduates of HBCUs back then. So, you know, they demanded the best out of um, each student, out of me and my siblings. And, of course, my mom um, expected the best out of us as well. Um, got a lot of good guidance. One of them, um, the persons that I can remember was a school librarian, and she was also a guidance counselor. And she was aware of the local paper mill scholarship, you know, West Vaco. Uh, no black person had ever gotten it before, and they would give two scholarships a year. So she encouraged me to apply. I applied, and I got the scholarship, and uh, a white student um, coming in high school got the scholarship. We both went to NC State. So, um, you know, having that encouragement from uh, these teachers, from HBCUs, we'd see them in church. We'd see them at the grocery store. They knew us personally. They looked after us, and, and so I was happy with that. I mean, only 40 students in my class, and it wasn't very hard for me with the guidance of my mom to be at the top of the class. So I graduated valedictorian in the class. But, again, you know, with a small uh, – it was Virginia Interscholastic uh, Association School – we were group three, the smallest school possible. Group one would be a larger school. 
which meant we didn't have a lot of training equipment. Uh, we didn't have a lot of extra anything. Um, my wife's school, she became my wife eventually. Uh, her name is Donna. We're same age. She grew up 10 miles down the road in a town called Clifton Forge, Virginia. And um, she went to a school called Jefferson High School. And back then, as you recall, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, that legislation that passed in 1954, desegregating schools, well, a lot of schools resisted. You know, the school systems in Virginia um, and elsewhere resisted integration. And so 1954, and it was not until 1965, my last year in high school, that the schools in my county, Allegheny County, were told to uh, desegregate. At my school, I did not have to go down to the white school, Covenant High School, my very last year, and I was happy about that because I lived right across the street. So my school, my class graduated in 1966. We were the very last class to graduate from the school. However, my wife oh, wow. down in Clifton Forge, she didn't have a choice. She uh, had to go to Clifton Forge High School her last year. So, you know, we, we've compared notes over time. I didn't know her well then. She was a cheerleader. She played basketball. Um, I knew her uncle more than I knew her, her uncle eventually went on to Western Kentucky to play uh, basketball. But, you know, we, the schools were segregated. We had great teachers. Um, I learned a lot. Um, guidance counselor turned me on to applying for the scholarship at NC State. And uh, the rest was history after that. I applied. And, and I didn't get that just based on the fact that I was a smart student. They knew at the paper mill that I was William Roscoe Martin, senior son, that's my dad. He was a laborer. And, uh, he, had, he had a great record. He was respected. So that's how I got that. Okay. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So obviously you were as well a gifted student, but a, a gifted athlete as well. So what was it like being a high school star, especially a black high yeah. school star during that period? Yeah. Well, you know, I imagine – you, I'm not sure what side school you went to, and some of your um, colleagues when you end up going to state in late 80s. But with 40 students in a class, and some classes smaller than that, we were called on to do everything. I mean, I um, played in the marching band, symphony band, I sang in the glee club, played football and basketball, um, and I had the respect of my peers, you know, in the classroom because I was making sure that I got my work done in the classroom and on the basketball court and football field. Um, I was viewed as a leader. Um, there was not a lot of competition that you would see in the larger schools. So we got by doing a lot of things. And um, I remember you know, I played quarterback on offense, and I was a safety on defense. And we would entertain the crowd at halftime with our football uniforms on, cleats, marching. I played the trumpet. So we would play, entertain the crowd, go back to the locker room for about five minutes, eat an orange, get instructions from the coaches and go back on the field and play both ways. So I got to do a lot. But, you know, you think about that, that was inclusion. But when I look back on it in terms of skills, honing, fine-tuning skills as a quarterback or as a safety or even playing instruments, the, my time was divided quite a bit. Uh, I don't regret it because I, I had that opportunity. A lot of kids, you know, these days – May or may not have the opportunity or don't take advantage of it. But, yeah, it was, it was some awesome days. You know, what I do remember, too, is 
our football field was essentially a cow pasture. <laughs> and I'm talking about being in the country. And it was across the street. It's connected to the school. I mean, there were actual cow patties on the field that we had to move out of the way. And wow. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, when we, when we played football Friday night, uh, we had to request the White High School field you know, in advance. Uh, if they weren't playing, then we could schedule our games, you know, at that particular field. That's just how little um, equipment or how well unequipped schools were for black students back during those days. And, um, but, you know, we, we played against small schools our size, group three schools in our district, consisting of schools like over in um, Lexington, Virginia. There's a school by the name of Lilburn Downing, um, a white school, Jefferson High School in Clifton Forge, small school in Stanton, Waynesboro. Roanoke had bigger schools, and then Charlottesville um, had bigger schools. You know, they were more like group group one schools. Uh, but we were the Mighty Hornets, and um, we, to make up our schedule, our athletic director basically were, was the head football coach. They would have to make up um, games and have us play teams out of West Virginia. I mean, there's one uh, city, Burryville, West Virginia, I vaguely remember, and, again, that was a cow pasture we actually played that Friday night game on. And it was elevated on one end and very low on the other end. So if you're on the low end, you're trying to score, you've got to run up the hill to get the score. If you're on the high end, you run down and run over everybody and you can score. So you always <laughs> want to be on the upper end. <laughs> and we, be, we won that game. So we played quite a bit in West Virginia as well. Okay, okay. <laughs> now, obviously, the schools were segregated. So yeah, did you guys – get any recognition from the white schools as far as your athletic ability? Did any, did they talk about you? Yeah, they, How did that? They, yeah, that's interesting because they knew we were uh, the mighty Hornets and we actually uh, challenged Covington High School to play, foot, play us, you know, football and they didn't do that. They didn't, didn't want to do that. And um, probably fear of losing or just the fact that, uh, you know, these teams were not integrated and we were not playing against each other. My last year of high school, a couple of kids, black kids, did go to Covington High School. And uh, it was one standout fellow named Ronnie Holloway who went down there. And, uh, like, during those times, we began to integrate colleges and high schools. Um, the black students began to stand out. Okay. All right. Now, were there any players – well, you, you talk about Ronnie Holloway. But yeah. were there other players that you watched and that helped build your dream? As, a, as becoming an athlete? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I mean, we we played uh, against teams. One team we played against was uh, over in Charlottesville called the Burley Bears. And they were a group one school of the Virginia Interscholastic uh, Association. And they had a season where they were – undefeated and unscored upon. I mean, that's how fierce they were. Wow. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know the players um, individually, but we drove, We went from Covington over to Charlottesville, which is the center part of the state. When I got off the bus, my knees were shaking because uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure. I was, essentially, I was afraid of that team. But we, we beat them 15-7. Um, to 7. And um, ironically, years Later, when I went to Charlottesville to become chair of emergency medicine in 1996, the mother of a kid 
at the time his name was Garvin DeBerry, who intercepted my pass, one of my passes, uh, she gave me an article that talked about Watson High School beating the mighty Burley Bears. And Garvin DeBerry, the kid at the time who intercepted my pass, was now the coach of Charlottesville High School football. And he wow. and my son, Marcus Jr., became good buddies. But they were rival football players, too. My son went to Western Albemarle, and this other kid, Garvin's son, Garvin DeBerry Jr., went to Charlottesville High School. So just kind of shows you uh, how things come in full circle. Mm-hmm. And then well, I'll just tell you one other story. Um, my wife doesn't like me telling the story, but, you know, she was a cheerleader uh, at the rival high school 10 miles down the road, Clifton Forge. She played basketball, but she was also a cheerleader for the football team. My team beat her team 72 to nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> I brag about that, team, 72 to nothing. But, see, her team, her high school was so small, they had probably less than 24 players on the team playing. Um, but her uncle, who was only one year older than she was, they were raised together, Walker Banks, um, went on to Western Kentucky University and played basketball and then eventually went on to NBA. So, oh, but, I, you know, growing up, I didn't have any big idols. My older brother played quarterback. I would watch him play. Um, I mean, I was growing up during the day of, of players like Johnny Unitas. I, mean, I watched Johnny Unitas. So, I didn't have any particular idols uh, for football. You know, when I went on the state, I was just wanting to go on, just wanting to play. Okay. All right. All right. Now, you previously previously mentioned that your siblings went to HBCUs. So how did you get out of the mindset of going to an HBCU and possibly attending a white college? That's a great question because, again, um, being secluded somewhat, we didn't have uh, white colleges recruiters coming to us. As I said, though, um, a few of the kids in the community or the communities were recruited, like um, my wife's uncle, Walker Banks, was recruited to Western Kentucky. There was another kid in Clifton Forge, I think it's B.C. Williams, went to play football at West Virginia. A couple of my uh, roommate classmates went to Virginia Tech for uh, academic reasons, but uh, I cannot remember anybody at my school, Watson High School, being recruited into sports at a predominantly white institution. I may be wrong, but I don't remember. My chance to move on related to getting the scholarship at the paper mill. I mean, I got quite a few uh, offers to come and look at schools to be recruited academically because I had great SAT scores and, you know, graduated number one in the class. But from the sports perspective, we didn't, we didn't have that sports pipeline at our school. So I really was not recruited for sports. Now, uh, my middle brother went on to Virginia State and played football there. He went there and basically, basically walked on the football team. Um, I mean, I could have gone to, Virginia State, Virginia Union, Hampton, schools like that. Um, but I had the scholarship, and I took that chance and went on out of state, NC State. Okay. All right. At, at what point did you know that NC State was the right place for you? So That's, that's a great question. Um, I did take a trip to state. I remember the middle of the winter. It must have been January, February, and it was snowing. Uh, the other kid from Covington, uh, the white student, who got a scholarship, and I uh, were on a bus. Um, and I think that was arranged by the paper mill and the schools to send us down there to make sure 
um, we were interested in the school and got to go and, and um, look at the school from the academic perspective and learn a little bit about sports. I mean, I didn't have anybody taking me around to um, basketball games or to look at the, you know, um, the sporting venues and so forth. <clears throat> but once I got to state, uh, I said, wow, this is, this is an awesome place. And um, I thought, well, I got the scholarship. You know, I can't mess around with this. Um, you know, my dad and mom, they don't have that kind of money to just send me out of state school. So I'm going to go and make the best of it. So um, I was happy, you know, having the guaranteed academic scholarship was the number one thing that enabled me to go ahead and accept um, offer to go to state. Okay. Okay. All right. And so how did the, so you have the academic scholarship. How did right. playing football at NC State come about for you? Yeah, so that's another great question. Um, being included in high school sports and all sorts of high school activities like the marching band and so forth, I mean, I was used to uh, having a heavy schedule and doing a lot, of, a lot of good things. So I actually, in 1966, fall 1966, when my parents dropped me off at school, I uh, thought about what I was going to do, and um, and I applied to become a member of the marching band. So my um, first year, fall year, um, I was a member of the marching band and, you know, playing trumpet. Um, and so that, that worked out very well. But it wasn't until um, the spring of 67 that I actually walked onto the football team. Um, so I think I probably got – Really, really interested when um, marching in Carter Finley Stadium in 1966. I mean, that was the very first uh, time the stadium opened up. We were playing mm-hmm. South Carolina, and I know we lost something like 31 21 or something like that, South Carolina. But I was playing, you know, marching band, playing the fight song, and looking around and seeing the guys' football uniform on the sidelines and so forth, and said, hmm, I could do that. But you know what did not register? Uh, was the fact that there were no black players on the team. That didn't hit me at all. I mean, there were um, some black uh, students, you know, playing in the marching band, um, a couple other black students playing trumpet and myself and, you know, a few others. So, I mean, I, I felt comfortable doing that type of activity, but I wanted to do a little bit more. And so just feeling included um, – or wanting to be included in the activity, so I walked on the football team in, in spring 67. Okay. Now, how did you approach them about walking onto the team? Which, which coach did you have to approach? How did you even find out how to do it? Um, somehow uh, I did have the opportunity to talk with Coach Edwards and Coach uh, Earl Edwards and Coach Al Michaels. Um, mm, okay. Just broke in the question about walking onto the team and, I don't think it was a lot of debate one way or the other. I mean, I think I mean they looked at me and I was a fairly small player, 170 pounds, soaking wet, um, you know, five um, eleven, and I just told them a little bit about my uh, my background and um, I said, sure, come on out, come and try out, and um, and so I did. I mean, and um, Earl Edwards was probably the longest reigning coach at at State, probably 17 years or so, I think. Um, I can see him now smoking a cigar and <laughs> walking the sidelines. And uh, I can see Al Michaels now kind of jumping around a little bit. But they okay. they accepted me. They told me to come on. 
I did. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, describe the atmosphere on the football team. So how accepting were your teammates? Uh, you know, I, I felt quite accepted. I don't um, feel that there was a time um, that I felt unwelcome. And, again, you know, I honestly didn't think about the fact that I just integrated the team. Um, and these were guys from um, North Carolina. They were from New Jersey. They were from Pennsylvania. They were from all around. Um, and I would say most of them probably did not come from integrated school systems. Um, but there were people who, you know, accepted me right away. I mean, Chuck Amato, I had to do Oklahoma drills against him, you know, nose to nose, big 56-inch chest. Even Dennis Burge, you know, who uh, consensus All-American, and Ron Carpenter. There's a guy named Mark Capuano. Um, I think he's, Mark may have been from New Jersey or New York. Um, Benny Lemons, Gary Yacht, Freddie Coombs, Art McMahon, Jim Donnan, even people like that. So, I mean, they they knew that I was not a white player. It was obvious I was a black player and that um, I may not have been the most skilled player, but they knew it was in my heart to do the best I could on the field. And um, uh, I never heard a negative comment from coaches or uh, some of the players. There was one a coach came on, I think, in 67. Jack Stanton was one of the defensive coaches, a younger guy. He was very – I think he had a military background, but he, he was tough, and um, but lovingly tough. I mean, he I'd get hit and I'd be on the ground or doing Oklahoma drills, and he would come by and say, oh, Martin, don't feel sorry for yourself. Just get on up. And I'd get on up. <laughs> I couldn't do anything but get on up. Oh, tough love. Okay. Did there ever come a time when everybody was, like, literally, because you integrated the NC State football team, was there a time when that was recognized? Well, you know, I think the guys, for the most part, we all uh, knew we had to withstand the rigors. Um, I mean, I played on the scout team, um, all the practices, and uh, whether it was on the offensive scout team or defensive scout team, you know, you have to play those positions. And, um Again, you know, those Oklahoma drills, you get nose to nose. Um, and then, you know, I began to play in some games when we're winning big or losing big, you know, my opportunity, particularly on the kickoff kickoff team. So, um, you know, I had my number, had my jersey, had my photo like everybody else. And um, you look at the team photos of 67 and 68, you look at, including the coaches, about 100 white faces and one face of color. And it's pretty obvious. Uh, my name there, that, that it was me. Um, but well accepted. I also had um, one of my roommates was uh, the team mascot, Art Padilla, um, Hispanic name, Arturo Hernandez Bahia. And when he was not in the room, I mean, I could tell because his uh, wolf costume would be out of the closet. He was hanging up in the show, would be sticking out of the closet, so I knew he was somewhere close by. But when he was out and about doing his thing, the costume would be gone. But you know, he he was very accepting, and uh, all of the um, suite mates in Brigall Hall, and that was my second year, uh, they were diverse. There were Jewish fellows in there, uh, Latino, Asian, black, white. And so it was great to be around a diverse group, and they were quite supportive. As a matter of fact, um, I guess probably being a member of the football team, you know, we were fairly popular, and so some of the fraternities, would rush us, uh, Jewish fraternity, I think it was Sigma Alpha Mu, um, wanted me to, to join them 
But um, I checked with my brothers. Both brothers were alpha, you know, one at Virginia State and one at Virginia Union, uh, you know, prior to me going to college. They said, nope, you got to go alpha. And that's a whole other story, getting alpha started at um, NC State. But teammates were accepting. Uh, there was not a lot of socializing aside from the training table, skull practices and so forth. So, I mean, uh, players would go. We all would go back and study. I know I had to study because I was carrying 21 credit hours um, with pulp and paper technology and chemical engineering and then pledging the fraternity and so forth. So I was a pretty serious student and um, go out there, take my knocks, come back to my room and study. And as my roommate, Art Pahia, would say, look at my wounds like a lion. So, yeah. <laughs> but no, I, was, I, was, I never felt unaccepted by the team. There were some issues with some of the other teams but not NC State. Okay. All right. So in those moments when the other teams would challenge you or cause problems, how did yeah. your teammates stick up for you? Uh, they would. I mean, they just tell me, um, hang in there. I remember vividly um, playing against South Carolina. It was a 1968 Cardiff I was on the kickoff team. And, um, you know, one play at, I was on the bottom on the pile trying to get up um, in South Carolina players. I recall they were kicking and spitting, spitting at me. And then I guess their fans picked up on it and, and were yelling some racial slurs. So, you know, eventually I got off the field, couldn't sit out there fighting. Um, you know, and teams would just you know, pat me on the back, say, you know, good play. And uh, that was about it. Okay. All right. <laughs> South Carolina. Again, you know, this I, back uh... in the 60s, like as alums <laughs> for some of these schools, um, you just never know. Just like now, sometimes you don't know what's coming out of the mind of some people. So Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I remember playing at South Carolina my freshman year. They yeah. had Sterling Sharp. But I remember walking out of the tunnel for pregame. We, you know, I had kickoff returns. So we yeah. were coming out to do kick returns. And I, they had these the hedges, but they had seats that, like, sat over the hedges. And there were these two older ladies just screaming and spitting at us. And, I, you know, that's in 87. <laughs> so <laughs> oh I can't goodness. imagine what it was like in the 60s. So Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, you know, um, it was uh, – there were other guys around who I began to get to know uh, to some degree. So the – person who came right behind me who um, really made a difference was uh, Clyde Chesney. And um, Clyde, uh, defensive end, he, he walked on and, well, he got a scholarship in 1969. So he was the first African-American Washington football player with, with scholarship. And then behind him, I'd stopped playing by then, was uh, Willie Burden. Um, yes. Willie, I think Willie came on in 1970. He was an in-low high school graduate, local and uh, I think in 73 or somewhere in that neighborhood, he became ACC Player of the Year. But, I mean, Willie set a bunch of records as um, I think he, he rushed over 1,000 yards, first Wolfpack player to do that in a year. Mm -hmm. so, so for me, you know, being there at State, and there were the one time they told us, I guess when I first got there in 66, there were about 100 black people, uh, black students, 95% were men. And, you know, and mostly in the sciences, um, by the time I graduated, 70 and then 71 with a chemical engineering degree, they're probably closer to 200. But, you know, you think about that. That's a very small number. 
And out of that number, um, nobody had been recruited as a scholarship player for football until Clyde Chesney, and that was um, 69. I'd already been part of the team for a, a couple of years. So, you know, I felt uh, good about that. And then you begin to see um, another black player and another black player until you get up to you guys' days where, you know, you look at the football pitchers and uh, essentially just as many or more blacks than, than white. And then um, that was back during those days too, early on when, you know, in terms of basketball, Al Hartley, I don't know if you know that name or not, he was the first African-American um, basketball player. He and one other fellow, but I think Al probably got a scholarship at some point. And then David Thompson, not until 1972, someone in that yes. neighborhood. Wow. So, um, and so the uh, black students who would come to football games, I knew they were there cheering for me when games were over. You know, we'd socialize. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, when we got the fraternity started, Alpha Phi Alpha, we went over to uh, Shaw University. There were two or three other guys online with me, and I was the shortest, so I was number one online. And uh, it was some tough days then. We'd have to walk all the way down Hillsborough Street carrying oh. our little, yeah, our black and gold poles and our shields and paddles and all that good stuff. And then, um, But I had to do that, obviously, when I wasn't practicing football. So that was time-consuming. And then some semesters I was carrying 21 credit hours. That was time-consuming. But, you know, we engaged with um, Shaw, St. Aug, HBCUs, Bennett, um, uh, let's see, A&T, North Carolina Central. So when we had social activities, we actually – had a house my, my junior year. I think that would have been 68, 68, 69. And it was our de facto frat house on Dixie Trail, 106 South Dixie Trail. That house doesn't exist anymore. That's where we did a lot of the um, socializing parties, get down to the chase. And there were very few uh, white students that would engage. There were a few interracial dating situations, but um, not much. And I can remember you know, just one time uh, asking a white female to go to the movies and uh, felt very nervous about it. I think I was probably more nervous about asking for the date than actually being black with a white girl going down Hillsborough Street. That was just, <laughs> that, just that one time. Uh, so, you know, you think about it with less than 200 black students uh, around, we reached out to to the other schools, St. Augustine Shaw. So we got Alpha started, uh, Beta Row at um, – Shaw University, boarded back to NC State. And then before uh, I left there in 1971, we started Ada Omicron, uh, the first black chapter of a um, first black fraternity on, on grounds at NC State. And so it's still going strong. As a matter of fact, yes. we had a um, 50th reunion. I think I told you about this last week, a 50th reunion uh, by Zoom of Ada Omicron. There were about 80 guys. On um, online, that was pretty cool. Oh wow! Yeah, that is awesome. That is but, amazing. But, but again, you put all put all that together for me. Twenty one credit hours, some semester. I didn't have a um, peer mentor telling me uh, you can't do that. Uh, I know I didn't want to take summer classes because I was working, making money, and uh, doing research at the paper mill in my hometown, West Pecone. I didn't didn't ask my parents for any money. Um, because I had the scholarship, but then I had to make extra money for extra things. So um, 
21 credit hours, tough. Pledging fraternity, tough. And so ultimately, after a couple of years, in 69, I went through spring camp. It didn't look like I was going to become a starter, and so um, I didn't return in August 69. And um, to my regret, um, I wish I could have, but had I not pulled up my grades, I would not have qualified for medical school. And I wasn't thinking medical school at the time. So it was God's good grace to say, get all this science behind you, get it done well, because i got something else planned for you. Nice. Nice. Okay. Was there a point that you ever felt like, you know what, this is too much and I I just want to quit and and walk away from it? Yeah. So I didn't want to walk away from it because I really like the players. I like the fact that the more I played, I would have more opportunities, and I probably – I'm guessing probably by the time I finished there, I probably would have had a starting position, I'm thinking. But I, there's no, no way to guarantee that. I knew I was not professional material. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, I knew mm-hmm. that I didn't want to flunk out of school, didn't want to embarrass my parents, didn't want to embarrass myself. So the walking away was about the academic part. But there were too many other students. I mean, there were a lot of bright students uh, who came to state, African-American, my very first roommate uh, was a fellow named Jimmy Gwynn, Gwyn, electrical engineer. He went on to become an uh, airline pilot. Um, but he was smart. A lot of guys smart. But some students came in there, um, didn't manage their time wisely, did not have peer mentors like a lot of schools have now, UVA, with peer mentors. And we have the highest graduation rate of uh, African-American students of any public institution in the country. And that's, you know, up in the high 80s and 90s. But we had so many wow. students dropping out. And I didn't want to be like the other students dropping out. I knew what it took that I had to spend a lot more time included working on um, the chemical engineering formulas, biochemistry, and all those other things that um, were necessary for me to get out of school. So um, I made that final determination, and I just had to walk away and keep moving. Okay. All right. That's uh thankful like, mm-hmm. that is uh you know you talked about your time in high school you were playing yeah. in the band playing football yeah. the halftime show but you know it, it's funny because it all you know it, it lines you up for for success just, yeah and it, i know it, at the time you probably didn't see it but it, it really did right it did it actually did um i mean i had to persevere um, I have fond memories, you know, I didn't get as much playing time as a lot of guys, but just being a part, getting out there on the field. And then, you know, uh, Chris, sometimes you don't realize the value of something like this, the participation until later years. So I told you about my uh, roommate uh, in Regal, uh, Arturo Hernandez Vigia, Arturo people would call him. And he became an administrator in NC State later and invited me to become a member of the inaugural Board of Visitors at NC State, and I gladly accepted that. I was, at the time, practicing physician, um, emergency medicine residency director at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, but then I, you know, got to go back to state multiple times participating in the Board of Visitors. Um, that would not have happened had I not had that connection with Art and his connection, you know, as the mascot for the team and so forth. But also, you know, in later years, um, going back for the 45th 
reunion of the 1967 team. I mean, that team was nine and two. You're talking about a little kid coming in and walking on the team was nine and two. That, that was that white shoes defense. And the team was number three in the country at one point. Uh, at one point, we had won eight games in a row. Then we lost to Penn State and Clemson narrowly. They were, they were the last two games of the regular season. Um, but then we went on Liberty Bowl, 14-7 win. But uh, we had reunions in 1945 and reunions in 1950. And I saw the majority of the guys, you know, still living during those reunions. And that made me feel really good to know that I was a part However little or much, I, however little I got to play, particularly in 1967, that was a major big-time team. And um, yes. Dennis Bird, um, you know, was consensus All-American and injured his knee. And so those last two games, uh, we lost narrowly to uh, Penn State and Clemson, probably because Dennis wasn't there to help step up to the plate. But then uh, for the 1968 team, we didn't have as good a record. It was like six and four, six and one in ACC. We did not receive uh, championship rings then, but it was around 2014 that um, uh, Debbie Yao, um, the athletic director, invited us all back to 1968 team to get our ACC rings. And I remember wow. in Bond Towers, you know, Debbie Yao giving us the rings, and then at the red and white game, you know, we were introduced on the field. So, and then for uh, November 2017, when we had the 50th reunion of the 67 team, <clears throat> and we were introduced on the field of the Clemson uh, NC State game. That was a that was a great game. We ended up uh, we were leading in the first half NC State, and then but we lost to Clemson 38 yes. to 31. But both teams were ranked. I think Clemson was like number four, and we were number 20 or something like that during the year. But mm-hmm. so with that the power of inclusion. Had I not been included, had I not taken a chance to walk onto the team, I couldn't tell you these about these fond memories. So it means a lot. That's awesome. That's awesome. I want I want to go back a little bit. So April fourth, nineteen sixty eight. So okay, yeah. MLK was assassinated that day. So do you remember yeah. where you were and how you found out about the news? Yes, I was uh, in my room. I remember vividly that day. I mean, it was. April 4th was one day after my 20th birthday. My birthday is April 3rd. And um, hearing the news about Dr. King uh, made me very sad. Um, I mean, I had a diverse group of suite mates that I could speak with about it and talk to my family members. I think uh, I think at that time, my little brother was at Fort Bragg, you know, in the military, and I called and talked to him about it. Um, but... I mean, that was news that uh, heralded around the world. And um, um, by that time, having been, you know, a sophomore heading on to my junior year, uh, I knew a lot more about civil rights and what was going on around the country, um, you know, at that time. And, of course, we'd just gone through the Vietnam War era and the protests related to that. Uh, it was a lot going on. And so I just couldn't believe that that happened. Uh, for a man so young in his 30s. And um, but this, you know, wasn't, wasn't anything that um, we talked about a lot around campus or at the football training table or anything like that. Um, so it was sort of an individual thing. Although it was a national thing, it was also individualized, particularly for young okay. African Americans. Okay. 
right. What sort of impact did that have on you? I mean, it's just... I yeah, I mean, again, I'm calling your brothers. Very sad about it. And, um, but I couldn't dwell on it. But, you know, I'm thinking, well, man, this is, this is what's happening these days. And, uh, again, I was in my room and I was studying and I knew that I had very little time to pull together everything I needed um, for, you know, classes the next day and for upcoming exams. I mean, I, I was kind of such a heavy load, Christian. I don't know if you have this kind of dream. Uh, later in life, I I will dream that I'm running around the brickyard around Harrison Hall trying to find that room, but it's a room that I don't even remember going to. I don't even remember taking that class, but i got to get in there and, and try to do this final exam. Otherwise, I'm not going to graduate. Of course, you know, then I wake up and realize, well, I did. I, I have two degrees from NC State, so I graduated. So it was about time, how to manage time and how not to dwell too long on things that you couldn't control. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm glad I'm not the only person that does that, so I don't think I'm crazy now. But I literally yeah. have – it's either a class, uh, a test, or I have to run to practice. I'm late for practice or something like yeah. that. So, something yeah. like that. <laughs> I uh, that's great. That is great. All right. So uh, I want to touch a little bit more on the, the social experience for – being a part yeah. of the team at that time. So what was it like to travel for road games, the meals, yeah. the housing, the transportation? What was that like? Yeah. I mean, I was, when I got to travel, I was included. Um, meals, I mean, I loved the meals. I mean, that's when you got to get steak and you got to get all that good food. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the players, the coaches, everybody uh, was nice. There was no issues. Um, it just, for me, it was it was great, and uh, again, unfortunately, um, not having additional years of playing to get more of that experience, I didn't have that. But um, I mean, it was the, the social aspect of it was just talking to the guys, doing practice after practice at the training table. It was never really an awkward situation, um, other than when it was not football season, and then you know there were parties and things like that. Um, teammates would be going to wherever they would go to. You know, I was hanging out with the black students. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. So mm-hmm. we'll end this talking about the your college athletic career. So what was the yeah. greatest moment or moments that you had? Yeah, I, you know, there's a um, an interception in a scrimmage um, caused a fumble. On a kickoff, uh, probably I think it was South Carolina. Somebody, somebody else got credit for recovering the fumble. But for me, the, the greatest moment again was just being in that red and white uniform, being on the sideline, um, having team photos, having the uh, individual defensive back photo, and then um, then the greater greatest moments would be subsequent years receiving the 1968 ACC championship ring which we didn't get back in 68, it wasn't until 2014. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then the reunions with uh, uh, these guys from the 1967 team. So I think inclusion, I would have to say moments would be just inclusion throughout. I, don't, I was not a superstar by any master's destination. Uh, so, you know, it just haven't been a part. Okay. All right. Okay. And, and looking back, what is one thing that you know now that you wish you would have known then? And how might have that impacted you? 
Um, well, I, coming from um, a small school um, in, in, you know, saying stretch of the imagination, I think it was a phrase I should have used before, but uh, I, I never imagined, first of all, going to school like Kentucky State until I got the, um, the scholarship because my world was all about what happened with my siblings with HBCUs. But once I um, got into state and began to play sports, I realized that um, I didn't come from an institution or high school where there was uh, a stress of skills uh, or training equipment or uh, quarterbacks coach or defensive backs coach, none of that. So I attended state as a serious academic student and knowing what I know now, I still would have walked onto the football team just like I did, um, Mm -hmm. but with uh, a much better knowledge of what it takes. Um, If I was going to be a serious football player, spending more time, skills level, even uh, perhaps during the summertime. But I was working at the paper mill during the summertime. I would work out some, but not to the degree that some of the other students who were uh, pretty much full-time athlete students. Uh, student athletes. So, but looking back now, I'm happy that I spent the right amount of time focusing on my grades because without having done that, I would not have gotten to the next level, I don't think. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the, the, the biggest question I have so, how did your experience at NC State prepare you for life? And is there mm-hmm. any one lesson that you know, you continue to practice more than others? Yeah, you know, so at the coaches and all and, and in the classroom, I had to listen attentively. And uh, I tell my kids now and grandkids, do more listening than talking so you can learn. And then once you really learn, you can talk. Um, don't feel sorry for myself. I tell the kids the same thing. Work hard, manage your time, um, you know, be able to take a hit and get back up. So perseverance for me uh, was a big deal that, took me over into this other phase of life. Okay. All right. So you graduate from NC State in 70 with and 71 with a degree yeah. in pulp and paper tech and then That's chemical right. engineering. So right. and, and people are always talking about, oh, the 1900s to the 1920s is the greatest generation. But mm-hmm. with all that was happening when you were in college, the civil rights movement, Vietnam, you know, mm-hmm. how did you stay so focused? Yeah, I, I mean, I had to stay focused um, due to the heavy academic load. I mean, I, I just could not face my parents if I feel. I remember staying up two nights in a row for a biology exam and fell asleep in the biology test and didn't get a good grade. I said, oh, man, I can't do this again. Um, so I had to do something a little bit different. Um, so, yeah, uh, participating with the students and talking about what was going on with the civil rights movement and so forth was important, but the grades were number one. And um, so I had to stay focused to, to get the grades. Okay. Okay. Right. So you weren't just a pioneer on the football field. You move on professionally to, to become a pioneering professional. At what That's point right. did you decide, I am going to medical school? Talk about that and also how you became the charter, a member of the charter class at Eastern yeah. Virginia yeah. Medical School. Yeah, that's a great, great question. When I was in high school, I used to carry a little bag 
um, white briefcase, and I wrote on it with the ink pen, Dr. Martin. And it wasn't so much a medical doctor. It was kind of like a Ph.D. doctor, like I'm, I'm, you know, small school, and I know a lot about math, and sometimes I'd have to go up to the teacher and say, I think it should be this way. But when I was um, working as a production engineer, I, it was one weekend, you know, after I had graduated in 1971, well, it was 1972 when this happened, I had to call my boss to come and relieve me because I was tired. I mean, the equipment was down. We were not producing as much, you know, pulp to get to paper. Um, my uh, boss came out, and he and some other guys were up on the scaffold, I mean, about 30 feet high. And uh, the team coming on to get the mill going at the time, the operating guys, somebody hit the button, and all this hot caustic soda and, and pulp came out of a, a line that had a crack in it, burned these guys, about six or seven of them. They fell to the ground, third-degree burns, broken bones. I could hear the siren that night because it's a small town. And then I thought, man, this is, this is some tough work. Um, I'd spent a lot of time looking after mechanical pumps and, and uh, fluid dynamics and so forth. And I said, man, wouldn't it be good to try to become a doctor and care for human pumps? So uh, Eastern Virginia Medical School was just opening its doors. Um, classes to start in the summer of 73, I applied. There were, you know, thousands of applications, about 1,200 applications for 24 positions. And I was fortunate enough to be one of 24. And I wow. uh, didn't look back when I was 1973, September. Went to EVMS. Okay. And now, I, were there I, other actors there? But that, that was hard work. Uh, three years um, in a row. Most of medical schools are four years. This was three years, maybe one or two Ooh. days for Christmas, and that was about it. Okay. Now, were there other African Americans that were that had applied that you that you knew of? Yeah, others applied, and one other fellow entered with me, but he had some difficulties along the way, and he dropped out. And he years later, subsequently came back and finished. But I was the only, the first and only African American to finish Eastern Virginia Medical School at the time. And um, I'm currently on the board of visitors there. I'm the vice rector at Eastern Virginia Medical School may become the rector in another year or two. Um, but it's a much bigger school now. I mean, they take 150, 160 students a year now. Okay. Okay. All right. And then you, you said, where did you do your um, residency? You said, yeah, I, I, uh, Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati Emergency Medicine Residency. I spent um, a year on the Navajo uh, Reservation out in Gallup, New Mexico. That's where my oldest daughter was born. Um, yeah, she's now uh, nursing faculty at Old Dominion University, and um, awesome. yeah. So then, then I went to Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, a practicing physician for emergency medicine. I was a residency program director, and then I became the chair before going to to UVA. Chair, okay. you mentioned General. you mentioned Allegheny General Hospital. I was actually born there in 1969. <laughs> yes, I was. Awesome. My youngest my youngest daughter was born there in 1981 on my birthday wow. uh, at Allegheny General. Did you grow up in Pittsburgh? No. My uh, my dad played for the Steelers way back in the day. Oh, so okay. my parents Thank lived you. there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. On the north so. side. Yeah. Back <laughs> to the Moore Street District. Yep. Yeah. yeah. My uh, family, diehard Steelers fans, my wife. Uh, followed Steelers for years, and she still does. So, 
Yeah, okay. we were there. I, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that because I'm a, I lived in I'm from Cleveland. We live okay. in Cleveland, so I'm a okay. diehard. I, I love the Browns, yeah. and I'm a Cowboys fan, so not a Steelers yeah. fan. Yeah, so you, you can imagine some of the Sundays I worked in the ER at Allegheny Journal in Pittsburgh, the fisticuffs that took place. I took care oh. of many people from Cleveland in the ER. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love yep. that. Yep. Whole different scene. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right. So, first African American to head a clinical department at UD, UVA. So, yeah. how did that experience? First of all, how did that experience come about? And how do you compare yeah. that to that what you went through at NC State? Well, you know, after uh, going to medical school and uh, residency training and working um, as a um, lieutenant in the U.S. Public Health Service and um, out at the Navajo Nation Indian Health Service. Uh, I was involved in, I became president of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, president of the Council of Residency Directors for Emergency Medicine. So there weren't many African Americans uh, in the line of work that I was in, and I was recruiting um, young people, men and women, into emergency medicine and um, you know, I was a champion for diversity there. Um, so I applied uh, for two chair positions leaving Allegheny General. One was at UVA and uh, one was down um, in, in Atlanta at Emory. And uh, growing up in Virginia, my mom and dad and my wife's parents were getting older, and they were still over in the Covington Clifton Forge area, which was about an hour and a half from Charlottesville. So it was a perfect place go back uh, so we could look after our elderly parents and then I, you know, become the first chair, the first African-American chair within the School of Medicine at UVA. So that was a challenge, just like other challenges along the way. You know, you get to the point where you say, man, I'm tired of being first. Let's, um, so my role was to continue to recruit um, new students, medical students and residents. And now, you know, um, you have uh, many more African-Americans in healthcare at places like UVA, and, and it's growing. But same, same kind of challenges, feeling of isolation, racial slurs sometimes from patients. Um, yeah, it never really stopped. But the higher you get on the professional rung, the lower numbers of people that look like you. And so that's still true today. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, and, and just looking back on your career, how do you describe mm-hmm. it, or how would you describe it, and what is your greatest accomplishment? Well, for me, you know, the, the career has been very gratifying. Um, I've had wonderful support from uh, my wife um, and family, and being, you know, in medicine and being in academic medicine on the road a lot for conferences and so forth, uh, there was a lot of time away from home. So I feel my greatest accomplishment is actually my family, um, having the family that I have, you know, four children, all well-educated. Um, three of them uh, have degrees from UVA. Uh, one has a degree from University of Central Florida. Um, one daughter has her Ph.D., a doctorate in nursing. She's a, a nursing professor at Old Dominion University. One uh, daughter has a law degree, and she works um, for the College Foundation at UVA. Uh, one son... Um, who walked on football team and basketball teams at UVA and got to play um, for Pete Gillen. And, um, you know, he got his degree um, basically in economics. And um, he's now 
uh, a managing director of U.S. Bank in um, Charlotte, North Carolina. So, oh wow, okay, uh, five grandkids. You know, so I, I, my family is my blessing and my greatest accomplishment professionally. There are a number of things that I can list. I think one is um, now I'm, I'm retired. I'm a tenured professor emeritus. They call me, but there is a Marcus L. Martin endowed distinguished professorship in emergency medicine in UVA. And uh, to endow these chairs, uh, it's like $2 million or more. It's not, it wasn't a contribution that my family made, but just the work that I did at UVA and, and the way we set up investments there. Uh, after I stepped down as chair, the faculty there decided to, uh, and the board of visitors, to um, form this endowed professorship in my name. Um, and so that's great. I mean, they're, at UVA, the only other African-Americans with an endowed professorship in their names are Julian Bond, who was a professor there for 20 years, and Thurgood Marshall. Mm. So I'm very blessed to be in that, that company. <laughs> and, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I co-chaired the President's Commission on Slavery in the university, and we just dedicated $7 million memorial to slave laborers at UVA. Uh, that's something that people can pull up online if you just Google uh, memorial to slave laborers dedication. You can you can see that that was a virtual dedication last year. So I mean there there are lots of things. I mean edited books on diversity and inclusion and quality of patient care. I mean at state I was on their inaugural board of visitors. I'm now in the Keenan Institute for Engineering Technology and Science at state. Last year College of Natural Resources, um, um, you know, elected me as a distinguished alum of the year. And the Department mm-hmm. of Chemical and Biomedical Engineering did the same thing, distinguished alum of the year. So I've been blessed uh, more ways than one. And even the um, Black Alumni Association at NC State honored me as a 40 for 40 honoree and as a top 100 African-American grad. A lot of this because yes. I walked on to play football a little bit, but mainly <laughs> because, you know, I put shoulders to the grindstone and to make sure that academically I was solid leaving state. And that was the stepping stone. I had all the building blocks to enter Eastern Virginia Medical School having been an engineering student at State. And I, I didn't plan it that way. That was all God's work. Lovely. Lovely. All right. Congratulations. You know, the hard work's paid off. I, I have a regret right now. I regret that I didn't know more of your story so oh, that thanks. I could aim higher or, you know, so some of the people that I know could have aimed higher. But what I don't regret is the fact that we're talking now. People will hear this, and it will force you. them to achieve and motivate them. So thank you for sharing. So. Oh, it's been my blessing that you asked me to do this. And, um, you know, look forward to um, being able to share this kind of information with my uh, grandchildren. My, my children know for the most part. But um, – grandkids will hopefully listen to this at some point and learn. So thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your show. Uh, it's been a blessing. Not a problem at all. And, and be, there's a couple more questions I have for you before we go, so I don't want to rush okay. you off. But, all right. No but, and, and just talking about the climate in the country right now. So mm-hmm. over the – and regarding racism over the past few years – so do you agree or disagree with the idea the more things change in America, the more they stay the same? Yeah, I mean, I, um, when you think about the 
assault on black lives, especially black males by police. I mean, this has been problematic uh, since the days of slavery, you know, the, the humanizing assaults on the enslaved, the whipping posts, the hangings. Um, but every time we turn TV on now, we're seeing a lot of the same, um, the pervasive racism in this country. So um, the country still has a long ways to go. The last four years under that administration was uh, horrible, and hopefully we're on a better on the right track now. Um, but, yeah, you're right. More things change the more they stay the same. Okay. And then – your views on systemic racism. And the reason I ask you is because mm-hmm. you are successful. I mean, you have the degrees, you have experiences, but for for what we don't see, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of times people just see, you know, it's, it's you judge a book by its cover. So we right. see what's on the outside. So what yeah. are your views on systemic racism? Well, you know, the question is asked often of um, people in – elected positions, is this a racist country? Um, Systemic racism is pervasive in a country, and it dates back to displacement of Native Americans, um, slavery in 1619 when it was introduced in the colonies in in the Jamestown, Virginia area, but even earlier than that, like in St. Augustus, Florida, for instance, um, Mm -hmm. as an African-American male, there's so many instances that I can tell you about the – um, implicit biases that I face um, as a physician, but having to stay the course and do the best thing for patients, regardless of who they are, even when the face of them calling me the N-word, you know, a way to handle that would be back out of the room, send a student or a resident in, and then come back and let the people know that I'm in charge and uh, I'll be making final decisions. You can leave if you want it, but you may be risking your life. Um, but, you know, I, I can give you lots of examples like that, but um, – their racism has been so pervasive in this country. There's, there are lags in education, uh, ownership, and wealth. The average white family's accumulated wealth is 10 times that of, of blacks. And so, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a position where I am to have some ownership, some, some things that I can pass on to my children. But um, just think about that, um, how much of a leg up, even going to college, a lot of the students, white students had being there land that they had accumulated through their families and in various wealth, and a lot of this on the backs of slaves over time. And I co-chaired the President's Commission of Slavery in the university, as I mentioned, so, you know, deeply rooted in this subject. There's a 96-page report that I left at UVA uh, with my co-chair, a fellow by the name of Kurt Von Dock, about the history of slavery at UVA and some of the things we've done there, naming buildings after enslaved, and as I said, uh, the Memorial to Slave Laborers, or discovering uh, a slave cemetery at UVA, and um, which used to be uh, a staging fill for uh, the environmental people, you know, wood chips and uh, other types of things like that, or landscaping, and then eventually became a tailgating place for football games, right on top of the cemetery. But people didn't know that until it was discovered or rediscovered when we were trying to expand the uh, cemetery at UDA. So, um, mm-hmm. but it, there were no headstones uh, visible because blacks would bury their people at night um, because they were afraid of grave robbers. You know, people would come and take the bodies out and, and there would be bodies for medical students to practice on. So, yes, systemic racism has been pervasive 
And, um, you know, we have, we have a long ways to go. Okay. All right. Thank you for that answer. Mm-hmm. Truly, thank you. All right. Shameless plug time. So brag on yourself one more time. Brag on your family. Uh, plug yeah. any social media if you have any. Yeah. And then any upcoming things that you have or where people can apply or find out more about you and your programs. Right, yeah. So, again, at, at UVA, um, if you Google President's Commission on Slavery in the University or slavery.virginia.edu, you'll pull up a lot of information on work that I've done there over time. Or you could also pull up Memorial to Enslaved Laborers. And uh, anybody on, online here, <clears throat> been to UVA, uh, been Charlottesville, the corner, uh, this Memorial to Enslaved Laborers, uh, is located on the UNESCO World Heritage Site, right close to the corner, which is close to the community. And uh, it, it basically um, is a memorial to 4,000 enslaved individuals from 1817 to 1865 who uh, built the university. So the university was built on the back of uh, enslaved, like a lot of institutions have been built. And we know about 600 of those names, and those names are on either first name or first name and last name, on the memorial but there are a total of 4,000 memory marks. So as, as time goes on and researchers find more names, we can engrave those names on, on the stone. And uh, the diameter of the memorial is 80 feet, the same as the rotunda. Rotunda is an iconic building at UVA on the UNESCO World Heritage mm-hmm. Site footprint. But where this memorial is built um, is sort of the back and lower side, north and eastern part of, of grounds, where the slaves labored, where the enslaved labored, you know, in the fields, but also doing other kind of work, preparing foods and, and so forth. Um, some of the names we have on the memorial are names that relate to the work that the enslaved did, such as, you know, carpenter, um, bricklayer, stonemason, um, you know, butler, things of that, names of that sort. And then mm-hmm. we have also names of um, kinship, like mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, uncle, aunt, brother, sister, to humanize the enslaved. And we have a, a timeline, historical timeline, about some of the names and some of the, the jobs that were performed by enslaved, but also some of the negative things that happened to the enslaved by students and faculty at the university. So, And then there's a water table going around that timeline, um, which signifies transatlantic voyage, signifies cleansing, uh, healing, libation, uh, a lot in that. So that's a lot of the work that I have done with others to bring this about in the uh, Charlottesville and UEA community. Um, But it's an opportunity to reflect in the hill, but it's also an opportunity to consider things that we, not only as institutions, but as a nation, need to do going forward, you know, with inclusion and um, equity and um, making it a more um, equitable place for all in our country, more uh, a place where we're all included and we have the opportunity. So so some of the things, you know, again, very proud of my family and support that I received from my wife um, and, and happy about the individuals that I came along with on the football team back during the day. And, um, you know, we've gotten together with reunions and there's certain teammates that will, you know, we'll email each other from time to time. And my old roommate, Mr. Wolf, um, 
we keep in touch a lot. My fraternity brothers, we keep in touch a lot. So, you know, Love a it. blessing for me, Love a blessing for me throughout my life. Yes, yes, and and well deserved. So, thank you, Dr. Marcus Martin. This has been a true honor and a privilege, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Um, well, thank I you. truly thank you. thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast, and I wish you and your family, you know, I wish you well and continued safety and success. So thank you once again for coming on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Thank you, Chris, and um, congratulations to you on the podcast, and thank you for this opportunity, and, and many blessings to all who are listening.